Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. Hello again. This is Acts of the Spotlight, Part 5. And we're back to the survey of this intriguing story that some like to call Acts of the Apostles. We're up to chapter 19. Paul decides to go to Jerusalem, but then there's a riot in Ephesus against the way, which seems to be an early name for Paul's Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who is offended by Paul, says, chapter 19, verse 26, quote, You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia, unquote. But he gets out of that one and he's off to Macedonia and then to Greece. Chapter 20. The Jews make a plot against him, so he changes plans and heads back through Macedonia. He is just going all over the place. He sails past Ephesus again and talks to the elders of that church, reinforcing the idea that the way is a Gentile movement by saying to them, I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Someone who is a part of a significantly Jewish movement would not say this. Then there's a travel narrative heading for Jerusalem. Paul and his companions arrive at Caesarea and stay at the house of Philip, one of the seven. Paul sets his face toward Jerusalem, even though he is warned by a prophet and pleaded with by friends not to go. On his arrival, the brothers receive Paul and those with him warmly. And the next day they go to see James and report to him and all the elders what God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When the elders hear this, they praise God. This author makes it sound like there are handshakes all round and hallelujahs. Then James and the elders say the thing about the thousands of Jews who have believed and are zealous for the law. And they say they've been told that Paul has been teaching things contrary to that. James tells Paul to join in on a purification rite with four men, something that would confirm to these Jews, who are zealous for the law, that Paul is upholding the law. What's Paul going to do? He's been declaring in his letters, Christ is the end of the law, and abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments. But he goes ahead and does it anyway. A bit later, some Jews from the province of Asia, that's where Paul's been teaching, saw Paul at the temple, chapter 21, verse 28, quote, They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defied this holy place, verse 30. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut, unquote. Of course, then it says they were trying to kill him. It's amazing how Paul escapes these situations. Here we have a whole city of people who have come running from all directions. They grab Paul, the gates are shut, and then they're trying to kill him. A whole city of people trying to kill one man. But they don't succeed. In fact, he's fine. Verse 32, quote, when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? And then he has a polite conversation with the commander, asking to speak to the crowd, as if he's just come in from a game of tennis. Question. If this is a true story, was the crowd trying to kill him? How do you know if a crowd is trying to kill someone? If observers were to draw that conclusion, they would have been seeing death blows or something. Otherwise, it's about reading people's minds collectively. Does our narrator know if they were trying to kill him? Pretty sure he wasn't there. My answer is, if they were trying to kill him, they would have. Therefore, they weren't trying to kill him. But our narrator wants us to think they were. And of course, the vast majority of people who read this, believe they were because he says so. So if they weren't trying to kill him, it's likely the whole murderous mob thing is a fabrication, 
and these were in fact people who had unusually high standards of moral conduct for their time, written into their belief system. People who, if they thought Paul had defiled the temple, had lawful proceedings for such matters. People of the same city of Jerusalem, where John had widely been held as a prophet, and where Jesus had been part of the same popular movement, if indications in the New Testament are anything to go by, teaching peace, love and forgiveness, hailed as Messiah by the people of Jerusalem, his disciples teaching in Solomon's colonnade at the temple, which surely means they were accepted as Jews who were teaching a form of Jewish observance. Their leader was James, the brother of Jesus, who seems to have been highly regarded by the people, and who said to Paul that there were thousands of Jews who had believed, all of them zealous for the law, meaning that what they believed fell entirely within the Jewish maelstrom and was very different to what Paul was teaching. They weren't run out of town or out of the temple, but Paul was, as a man who was teaching all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. Then Paul gives his speech to the crowd, who become very quiet when he speaks in Aramaic. He gives the story of his conversion, with a catchy format for Christians. I was so bad before, but then I saw the light, and Jesus gave me instructions. A man named Ananias came to see me, and said, chapter 22, verse 14, quote, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Unquote. And now I'm God's special messenger to you, bunch of lost souls, says Paul. I'm paraphrasing here. But then he says he's been sent to the Gentiles. So the crowd shouts altogether, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. And they're shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. A city of gremlins. They'd kill him if they could. But where are the thousands of Jews who have believed, who might have taken care of crowd control, showing their support for God's special messenger Paul? That takes us back to chapter 21, verse 20, quote, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. Unquote. James and the elders weren't saying those Jews were preparing their banners and a guard of honour to welcome their champion Paul into the holy city. They were warning Paul about thousands of people who are opposed to him because they've heard he's been teaching against the law, which he has. So this sheds some light on the scenario of Paul at the temple. The whole city may not have been trying to kill him, but thousands of people were against him. Thousands of people who were believers, according to James and the elders. Maybe these are the people who had the greatest reason to be offended by Paul. And maybe these are the people that our narrator is condemning as cloak and dust-flinging murderous gremlins. Just like the author of John chapter 8, who called the Jews who had believed in Jesus, verse 31, Children of the Devil, verse 44. Is this a stretch? It's reasonable to see a connection between the warning Paul received and what happened at the temple. And if you tone down what happened at the temple to something more realistic, it could well have been an angry mob that was opposed to Paul. Angry, but not trying to kill him. The evidence is there for a real story involving an ideological clash between Paul and the Jews that are being condemned throughout this story. So then Paul is going to get flogged by order of the commander, but they find out he's a Roman citizen, and then he's like a guest of honour. Next thing, he's in front of the Sanhedrin. His defence doesn't go too well, so he cleverly raises an issue that gets them arguing amongst themselves. And from those who agree with him on the issue, we hear the words, quote, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Unquote. Then it becomes so violent, Paul might be torn to pieces by these crazy people. So the commander gets him out of there. Roman citizen Paul and his good mate, the Roman commander. And another episode involving the mad, bloodthirsty Jews of Jerusalem. 
These reports, carefully handled by Gentile Christians and proudly brought to us in time by the early Roman Catholic Church. I think it's good to be reminded of these facts. There could be a reason why we're being given fine, upstanding Roman commanders and governors with judicial proceedings based on good moral values who are having to deal with the Jewish rabble, their amoral Sanhedrin and their tendency to want to kill people. It's quite possible that it was the other way around. In fact, I believe the vast majority of other sources tell us that it was. Jews would obviously have told this story very differently, and that includes the original followers of Jesus. This material was not written by them. Then there's some red-lettered words in my Bible, meant to be the words of Jesus. Chapter 23, verse 11. Quote, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Red letters, Jesus talking, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Unquote. End of red letters. So Jesus, whose disciples are in Jerusalem, had Paul testifying before all the people that God had chosen him, Paul, to hear words from God's mouth and to be a witness to all men of what he's seen and heard. A bit like what Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus to his disciples, quote, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, unquote. Who does God want the people of Jerusalem to listen to? If the answer is both Paul and the disciples, we don't seem to be getting a united front here. Something else Paul testified before the people of Jerusalem that happened after his conversion was, chapter 22, verse 17, quote, When I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Red letters. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Unquote. The people of Jerusalem won't accept Paul's testimony about Jesus. Isn't the Jerusalem church in Jerusalem? Why didn't Paul's Jesus talk about how the people of Jerusalem are receiving his disciples' testimony about him and about how they're in this together? And there's a whole lot of them, thousands. And if they are in this together, teaching the same message about Jesus, the wider population of Jerusalem would be rejecting Paul and the Jerusalem church. Let's have a look at how the message of the disciples of Jesus is being received in Jerusalem. Paul's conversion happens in chapter 9. Before chapter 9, we've got a fast-growing community of observant Jews, not an isolated Christian enclave. I hesitate to say observant Jews here because I know Jews would disagree with this, but my understanding is that they disagree with this because this movement is presented by Christians and by the New Testament as a Christian movement, and this material is all we have to go on. All we have to go on is the texts we're dealing with in this podcast. But we're finding a lot of evidence against the idea that these people were Christians. When I interviewed Rabbi Philip Kaplan at the Great Synagogue in Sydney and asked him about this movement and how Jewish it might have been, I think his answer was to some degree based on the assumption that the book of John, for example, is an accurate representation of what Jesus taught. Have Jews also historically swallowed this Christian story? Does the Jewish layer underlying these documents, a story told by their own ancestors, tell us something quite different? The Christian story on top of that Jewish layer, involving the Christian redaction of documents, has a Christian agenda. So things that go against that agenda are likely to be genuine. This is a solid way to assess material within these documents, and it actually does mean that portions of texts that don't work with the Christian agenda are more likely to be genuine. A good example of this would be those words of James about the believing Jews who are zealous for the law. So, how was the message of the disciples of Jesus being received in Jerusalem? 
and how Jewish was that movement? Remembering that we're reading the words of an author who wants them to be the first Christians. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 About 3,000 were added to their number. Then verse 46, quote, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Unquote. Chapter 4, verse 4. Quote, Many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 12. Quote, All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Unquote. Chapter 6, verse 7, quote, The word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Unquote. Then at the start of chapter 8, after the stoning of Stephen, we've got, quote, A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Unquote. But then in the next chapter, apparently soon after Paul's conversion, 931, quote, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers, unquote. It doesn't sound like it would be only the disciples left in Jerusalem. Over to chapter 21, and we've got that bit where James and the elders warn Paul of many thousands of Jews who have believed. So there were a great number of them, enjoying the favour of all the people, a large number of priests becoming obedient to the faith, meeting in the temple courts. Then there's a persecution and they all take off, all except the apostles. And then there's thousands of them again in chapter 21. Strange persecution that leaves the ringleaders alone and chases the people away. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But let's say it is just the apostles left in Jerusalem after Paul's conversion. In chapter 9, which is where the author of Acts gives us an account of Paul's visit to Jerusalem after his conversion, Paul tries to join the disciples, but they don't trust him, and it takes Barnabas's recommendation for them to receive him, and then he stays with them and moves about Jerusalem freely, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, until people try to kill him. And then the brothers look after him and send him off to Tarsus. But we've been looking at a different account of this, when Paul tells it in chapter 22, before the crowd. So it gets a bit messy when you look at the disparity between these accounts, because the author of Acts is writing both of them. In chapter 9, he writes of a cautious acceptance of Paul by the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem after his conversion. But here in chapter 22, Paul is standing up in front of a crowd that surely would have included many of those Jewish believers he was warned about. And he's making this bold claim that he is the one that God has chosen and charged with the message of Jesus. In the city where the disciples of Jesus are. A bold claim. And it doesn't speak of any concurrence with the disciples or any meeting with them. He just tells the crowd that after his conversion and this great commission, Jesus tells him, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately. He's being sent to the Gentiles because his testimony won't be accepted here in Jerusalem. They will not accept your testimony, Paul's Jesus says. Surely that doesn't mean everyone. Not all those thousands of Jews who have believed. Not all those people who are part of the same movement as Paul, as the Christian story would have it. But we're not given the impression that Paul has thousands of supporters out there. He's flying solo. There's no divided crowd with his brothers and sisters holding ground for him and smiling as he waves to them. And where are James and Peter and the other disciples? There's been plenty of time for them to have heard what was going on and come out in support of Paul. If he's teaching what they teach, why aren't they there defending themselves also against this hostile crowd? Applauding their brother Paul. 
recognizing his status as presented in the New Testament, with their bags packed to go fishing because what Jesus taught them doesn't really matter that much anymore. And Peter, being the author of 2 Peter, might have called out to the people to be quiet. This is wisdom that God has given him. I know his letters are hard to understand, but only ignorant and unstable people have a problem with them, as they do the other scriptures. Peter the Christian. So when Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, refers to churches in Judea suffering from the Jews, who, quote, killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out, they displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, unquote, as if there are churches in Judea full of people who believe in Paul, even though here in Jerusalem there seems to be no one like that. When Paul says those things, Peter of the Christian imagination would agree with this because it's going to be in the New Testament. But the Jewish Peter might have had a problem with these words, and he might have been among the people who didn't like Paul speaking to the Gentiles, people who had good reason to not like what Paul was teaching about their rabbi. So it's pretty clear that Paul was one man claiming an exclusive from God. We've seen that in Galatians. And he also said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, quote, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain, unquote. And to the Romans, Romans 15, 18, quote, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Unquote. Romans 16.25 Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed. Unquote. It's one thing to make these claims to Gentiles in other parts of the empire, but standing before a large crowd of Jews who had known Jesus to various degrees and were familiar with his teaching, claiming to be God's special messenger before this crowd of people who are very particular about who they take to be a prophet and who obviously couldn't have disagreed more. This is pretty gutsy stuff. That would take a lot of fortitude. But would he really have been game enough to do this? To say these things before the Jews of Jerusalem? One thing is clear. This is not a story written for or by Jews. It's a story written for Gentiles who believe that they have the truth and the Jews don't. So, where were we? Chapter 23 of Acts. After Paul is removed from the Sanhedrin by the commander, because there's the risk that he might be torn to pieces. Then those red letters, the Lord stands near Paul and says, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Then there's the plot to kill Paul. Who wants to kill Paul? Ah, oh, yes, it's the Jews, of course. But just 40 something of them involved in a plot to ambush Paul and not to eat or drink anything until they've done the deed. The commander rescues Paul again. Chapter 23, verse 23, quote, He called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Unquote. Very special treatment that Paul is receiving here. Very special treatment indeed. I wonder how he got such notoriety. Was it something that happened in the mid-first century? Or is this the retrospective championing of Paul by a creative writer who also likes the idea of wonderful Roman commanders? Who probably weren't in the habit of dispatching 470 soldiers 
to protect a single man, a man who wasn't a foreign dignitary or the emperor himself. Then there's the trial before Felix, attended by the high priest, some elders and a lawyer from Jerusalem, who bring their charges against Paul, saying he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. In Paul's reply, he says he is a follower of the way. The trial passes and he ends up being held there for two years, with Festus seeing him frequently, hoping that Paul might offer him a bribe. Felix is replaced by Festus. The Jews get to Festus when he goes to Jerusalem and try to arrange their ambush to kill Paul again, with no luck. There's another trial, and at the threat of being transferred to Jerusalem, Paul appeals to Caesar. These last few chapters are even more solely about Paul, as if nothing else matters. Paul goes before King Agrippa. Chapter 25, verse 24. Festus says, quote, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, unquote. Paul is given permission to speak, and he gives another rendition of his conversion and great commission. Acts 26, verse 16, Jesus speaking to Paul, as told by Paul, quote, Get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and, and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Unquote. The preeminence of Paul's position increases with each rendition. Then verse 19, Paul speaking, quote, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, unquote. He preached that people should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds, and that is why some Jews tried to kill him. Very unlikely that Jews in the temple courts would try and kill him for saying that. Is it possible that Paul or this author could be lying? The hearing before Festus and King Agrippa ends with them being unconvinced but agreeing that Paul had done nothing wrong. And then Paul is off to Rome by ship. He predicts a storm, but they don't heed his warning. After days in a violent storm, when all seems to be lost, Paul gets up and says, Men, you should have taken my advice. And he tells them an angel has been talking to him, so he knows no one's going to die, but the ship will be lost, to be wrecked on some island, where they will run aground. And it all happens just like he said. The people of the island welcome them. Then a snake bites Paul, and they decide it must be recompense because he's a murderer. But then he suffers no ill effects, so he must be a god. They're invited to stay with an official of the island, and while Paul is there, he heals the official's father of sickness. Then the rest of the sick on the island come and, and are all cured. Next they're sailing off again, and they eventually arrive at Rome, where Paul is allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. He calls together the leaders of the Jews and tells of his arrest in Jerusalem for no good reason. Chapter 28, verse 21, quote, They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Unquote. So they come in large numbers to hear from Paul. Verse 23, quote, He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses and from the prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. 
They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. End of Paul's glorious closing words. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The End and that is it for Acts of the Apostles. It just stops there. Which does seem to suggest that the writer is ending in the present, with Paul still there in Rome, boldly preaching and declaring the truth. It suggests the information has come from someone who was there with Paul, and so do a number of places in the text where the term we is used. For example, chapter 16, verse 10, quote, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, unquote. This author is a follower of Paul anyway, whether he was there or not. All right. The idea with the survey of Acts was to demonstrate what I think is the intent of the author. Pretty straightforward. It's meant to be about what the apostles, the men who were called by Jesus to be his representatives and to convey his message, it's meant to be about what they did once he left the scene. I suppose the author of the document isn't the one who gave it this name, but it's definitely in keeping with what he's laying out for us. In chapter 6 of this podcast, I read out a list of the New Testament books, but for each of the books, rather than saying the usual name, I said who it is that is teaching us. It went, Jesus, 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 Acts, and then Paul 13 times, and then after Paul, an unknown author, James, Peter, Peter, John, 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 Jude, John. Acts of the Apostles appears to play a key role there. Without Acts, you don't have Paul. With Acts, you have Paul lock, stock and barrel, with no room for Jews who think they know more than Paul, and definitely no room for funny ideas, like a whole movement of them, lurking around the place, unless they're armed and dangerous adversaries. This survey of Acts was a bit more drawn out than I intended it to be. So here's a shorter survey. For each chapter of this book, I'll say the name of who it is we're following, who each chapter is primarily about, who's God's man delivering the truth. You know how it'll sound, but it needs to be done. This needs to be sounded out. I'll pause between each chapter. Okay, here we go. The disciples of Jesus and Peter. The disciples of Jesus and Peter. Peter. Peter and John. Peter and the apostles. Stephen. Stephen. Philip. Paul then Peter. Peter. Peter, Barnabas and Paul. And the church at Antioch is established. Peter, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Paul and Barnabas, Paul, Barnabas, the apostles and elders, Peter and James, Paul and Silas, Paul, Paul, Apollos, Paul, 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 and Paul, chapter 28, the last chapter of Acts of the Apostles. Did I mention Paul never met Jesus? I believe at the time of writing, this author would have had access to more information about the actual apostles, the disciples that Jesus taught and commissioned. If this writer was a Gentile living elsewhere, and even if he was writing late in the first century, he could have gone to the right people to get more information about what they were doing. Did Peter really go to Rome? Was he really the first Pope of the Roman Catholic Church? 
ministering there alongside Paul. If he was, I think this writer would have made the most of that, or someone after him would have. If Peter went to Rome later and was involved in that church, the agenda we've seen in the New Testament and in Acts makes it clear that this would have been carefully preserved and canonised as a most important part of Christian church history. There is nothing to substantiate the involvement of Jesus' disciples with Christian churches, apart from Peter turning up at Antioch, only to be shown up by Paul for bending to the influence of rigid law-entangled Jews. This shift to Paul in both the New Testament as a whole and this document, the first history of the early church, is decisive. It's intentional, and there is a reason for it. The author of Acts is a Christian, which means he follows Paul. He's interested in the travels of Paul, the churches he went out to, the people he was associated with. Information he includes about Peter, James and John and co. is vague in this regard. The author of Acts is not a Jew. To him, the Jews are against the Christians, generally speaking. He does not recognise the significant movement of Jews who follow Jesus that are evidenced in his own text. He would have us believe that they are Christians, even though he doesn't have them play a positive part in his story, or even show up in any significant way. And there are words from James in there that make it clear that they were certainly not believers in Paul or his gospel, which I think is an indication of authentic source material that the author of Acts is working from because these words don't work with what he's been implying, that they were Christians. To the Christian, the idea of Jesus and his disciples really being Jews is discordant, and not really assimilated. If they really were Jews, then what they believed was quite foreign to anybody who believed what Paul taught, because Paul taught things that are absolutely contrary to Jewish belief. This means... The movement that the disciples of Jesus were a part of, meeting at the temple and in synagogues when they went out from Jerusalem to the people they were affiliated with, the Jewish nature of their movement was foreign to the writer of Acts, and that's why he doesn't recognise them. His belief is in Paul and the Jesus of Paul, and the role he has for Peter, James and John is to validate this belief, as a member of a movement that both believes in a Jew and rejects the understanding of him held by his own people. I was approached yesterday by a man called Sam who was walking the streets where I live, wearing a t-shirt with some sort of Christian slogan and handing out tracts that summarise Paul's gospel. Basically, he was walking the streets telling people, in all sincerity, that if they don't believe the right things, they're going to hell to be tormented eternally. So in his mind, people really need to believe these things. And he was doing what he could to save people, which is commendable. And I told him that I thought what he was doing was commendable, given what he believes. Then, of course, I had some questions. I asked him if Jesus taught these things. The points in the tract he handed to me, the things people need to believe. And he said, yes, he did. Then I asked him to show me where, and of course he couldn't. All he could do was point to the odd sentence that can be made to fit with what he was telling people, something that probably could be done with the owner's manual for the car he drives, if you really want it to, because Jesus is not recorded to have taught people this message. It's as simple as that. Teaching something involves more than an isolated sentence here and there, the sort of thing that can be squeezed in by an editor. We've seen that Christian editors have done this, the most obvious example being where Matthew, copying Mark, adds the words for the forgiveness of sins to what Jesus says about the wine at the Passover meal. His best bet was the book of John, but in answer to my question, he fell to the default for any Christian evangelist in this sort of situation, and that is to answer with a little sermon. What I should have done first is ask him to show me where Paul teaches this and he would have confidently shown me the words of a man who was teaching this message, describing it in detail, outlining it, teaching it at length to his readers, saying it in different ways, emphasising it as the most important thing in regards to the spiritual condition of people and their eligibility for acceptance before God.
Then I would have asked him to show me where Jesus teaches it, and the contrast would have been seen for what it is. Of course, the conversation turned into a bit of an argument, and in the end he wouldn't shake my hand, saying I was an apostate, and that he needed to have nothing to do with me or whatever. He needed to have nothing to do with me, but this had nothing to do with how I viewed the teaching of Jesus, or how I might have responded to his teaching in my life, because what Jesus taught is not the standard. Sam would not address the question directly. His belief in Paul's teaching came first, because he is a Christian. Saying we have reason to believe Jesus taught Paul's gospel message is saying something that is patently untrue, but the Christian who says it is not lying, in their mind. For them the assumption must come first, and the assumption is called faith. You must believe first, and then do your best to explain it or avoid it. Very few Christians are honest enough with themselves to state the obvious when they know they're looking at the edge of a potential hole in their belief system. Saying Paul's gospel came from Jesus because Paul claims to have had a vision is like saying a biography of Elvis Presley that introduces previously unknown information about him is accurate because the writer said Elvis appeared to him in a vision. That's the sort of thing we're dealing with here. The difference is these New Testament documents gained the backing of the church. Belief in Paul's self-proclaimed visions or encounters with Jesus. This is the foundation of Christianity. Just because it happened a long time ago and it's written into a special book doesn't change the nature of Paul's claim. In the introduction to this podcast, I said that I intended to be objective in my treatment of Christianity, but then it wasn't long before I realised that this wasn't going to work because I am trying to demonstrate something and I want to be right, so I've got an agenda and I can't claim to be an objective observer. But there's another dynamic that makes it difficult to look like you're being objective. Trying to sound objective when you're doing a rational assessment of Christianity is like trying to do so with the flat earth theory. You can look at it as a possibility for a while, but pretty soon you're just going to start pointing out all the counter-evidence and refuting the assertions made by the proponents of the theory pretty much all the time as you go through it like one thing after another, because the theory just has too many holes in it, and your rational assessment becomes something that is consistently arguing against the theory. Alright, it's probably a bit unfair to compare Christianity with the Flat Earth Theory. The Flat Earth Theory might have a bit more going for it. Obviously, I've given up on the idea of objectivity. How much evidence does it take for deception to be recognised within the pages of the New Testament. This production, put together by the Church. We've been looking at Acts of the Apostles, a book that on the surface looks like history, but if it was played out on a stage, I think it would become apparent that the genre of this book is far more entertaining than that. We're going to end off by imagining we're in the audience of Acts of the Apostles, the stage play, not forgetting that the audience is just as interesting as the play. This audience is made up of the people the document was written to, which is Christians in the time following the ministry of Paul, Gentile Christians, in the regions he travelled through, in churches he wrote letters to. We're sitting alongside them, objective observers that we are. The performance proceeds. Extraordinary things are happening right from the start, requiring significant special effects. Something is in the air. Understanding what it is is very important, and the characters the story starts with are the ones to watch, the apostles. So things are going along quite nicely. The lead roles are played by these people who are called the apostles. It's a story for people who believe the same things that they do. But then after a while there are some people in the audience who start laughing at certain points. The majority are taking it seriously and they sternly shush the people who are finding it funny. How dare they? 
Halfway in, and this sort of thing is on the rise, as the tension in the audience increases. Snickers and giggles followed by offended shushes. The play is getting into gear, and it's looking more and more like a promotional campaign. There's now a lead character who came out of nowhere, but a voice from heaven is just for him, and so is the spotlight and the microphone. The majority of the audience don't seem to have noticed that there's something funny about this. They're carried along by the performance. Whoever they're told is right is right. Whoever they're told is wrong is wrong. And when this man stands under his shining light, he has them in the palm of his hand, as if he was already their hero before the show. What? Wait on. Where did those other blokes go? No time to think about that. Our lead has some shifty, shadowy characters to deal with. Jews! They don't get any lines, don't say anything, but they seem to be ever-present, and they're moving around in mobs and crowds and throngs as agitators, forming conspiracies, rioters, throwing cities into turmoil, and attacking the main man and trying to kill him. But he always gets away to testify to the truth another day. It's pretty slapstick, but there are oohs and ahs from the audience. It becomes clear that those original characters are not coming back, and there's only one apostle standing. This man who wasn't one in the first place. He's the one being chased by the Jews, those fighters against all that is good and right. Look, there he goes. And there are snickers and guffaws from the other group in the audience. And shushes and snickers. It seems there are different ideas amongst them about the genre category that this performance should fall into. So, which of these groups gets it? Who's going to say later on, oh really? I thought it worked well as a comedy, or I thought it was an accurate representation of events. Who is not getting it? The people who are laughing might call it a farce. A farce, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, is quote, a comic dramatic piece that uses highly improbable situations, stereotyped characters, extravagant exaggeration, and violent horseplay. The term also refers to the class or form of drama made up of such compositions. Farce is generally regarded as intellectually and aesthetically inferior to comedy in its crude characterizations and implausible plots. Unquote. Acts of the Apostles is farcical in places, and those places are where the author has a clear intention to deceive his audience. And the implausible plot of this drama as a whole is also a farce. The way we get from Jerusalem to Paul is a farce. The transformation from Jewish to Gentile is a farce. But it was written to be believed, which makes it the greatest and most successful deception. It's the story that succeeds in turning a first-century Jewish movement into Christianity in the minds of the majority. Whether or not Christianity has been a good thing over this 2,000 years depends on your viewpoint. I'm pretty sure Jews would generally have a thing or two to say about this. The modern evolution of the church is a lot nicer than it's been in the past drawing from a lot of good teaching in Paul's letters, combined with Jesus' teaching. But Christianity could have been built on Jesus' teaching. If that were the case, would we have this saints and sinners thing, the idea that some people are cleansed for heaven and everybody else is subject to the sinful nature to their very core? This idea had its dreadful manifestation in the dark ages of church history, with crusades and inquisitions and the like. That's all in the past, and we now have post-enlightenment Christians, and good things that are being done around the world. But Christian good works are usually combined with Christian teaching. Jesus says, love your neighbour. The Christian naturally runs this through the filter of Paul's teaching, and believes that the best thing they can do for their neighbour is to get them to think about Jesus the way they do. If given the opportunity, they will sincerely and honestly tell people that Jesus taught things that he didn't teach because they believe lies that were told about this a long time ago. In their mind, people are condemned if they don't believe these lies, and are an agent of the dark side if they teach things 
that are contrary to them. They are proponents of an ancient deception, no matter how sincerely they believe it. But at the same time, there's teaching of Jesus that the Church has preserved, and there are many Christians who primarily look to this in their faith, and there are so many great Christians doing good things to make this world a better place. This is why I need contribution from the other side. I get carried away with the negative. I like the sound of that, closing with the words ancient deception and then the transition tune. To me it had a nice ring to it because of my history and experience over the last 15 years or so. To Christians, I know this will all sound very different. I want to make it clear that this podcast and my negative attitude are about a belief system, how it divides people socially, and how this is based on theory that has so many holes in it. How it's based on a story that diverts attention away from the disciples of Jesus and their community, and then discredits them in favour of another movement and another teacher who proclaims Jesus but teaches things about him that are in no way derived from his teaching, which was about living well in this life by the things that you do, not to earn salvation, but simply out of love for God and others. This has been replaced by Christianity, all about going to heaven if you have the right mindset. That's the target of my criticism. And on the positive side, I'm driven by the fact that there is a story behind this story that we're presented with in the fifth book of the New Testament, something that I find quite fascinating. But there's a prerequisite for those who would see the story behind this story. You need to recognise that the Church and God are not synonymous. The Enlightenment was supposed to have dealt with ideas like this, but it's still a powerful idea in the minds of Christians. For Protestants, God may not be administering the affairs of the Church, but he's still in the book that was produced by the church. That's the end of this chapter, but we haven't finished with Acts yet. I haven't done the first thing that I intended to do, which was to have a look at the transmission. In a previous episode, I likened Christianity to a car, and said acts is the transmission of the car, the thing that substantiates the idea that the baton was passed to Paul. Jesus commissions his disciples, and then the New Testament commissions Paul as the primary messenger of Jesus, with acts providing the story that supposedly explains how this happened. I don't think this will take very long because I've already covered a lot of it. It'll just be a case of putting the information Acts provides for this together to see how substantial it is. And then I'm also going to look at the transmission from the disciples of Jesus to the earliest church fathers and claims made by the church about that. It's about a relationship. The relationship between certain people in Jerusalem and Christianity. Thanks again for listening.